Welcome, Aaron. Kevin. Welcome. Welcome. This is our last chapter of Venture Deals. How do you feel? How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling festive. How, do you feel? How are you feeling? I mean, both. Okay. Both. both feeling work. festive because it's Thanksgiving or yeah. because it's the last chapter? Uh, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. So how was your prep for this particular chapter? So I had an extra week to prepare because you were gone right. last week. And then I thought we were recording this morning and then we didn't record this morning. And so now here we are recording Monday afternoon. I flipped through the pages of this chapter and said, oh, great. It's stuff I already know. Legal things every entrepreneur should know. I'm going to be really disappointed if there's some things in here that we don't already know. Yeah. Aaron, uh, I thought that this chapter was a little primer that probably would have been helpful at the beginning of the book. And when we put this in the show notes, Nikki, I wouldn't mind saying, hey, listen to this one first, especially for our baby startups, right? The more nation startups that we have. This is really, really valuable stuff. And I think that anyone who is raising a Series A round has probably already had a pretty healthy dose of these topics by the time they get there. For those of you that have not yet raised a Series A round, kudos to you for reading through the book way ahead of time. I think that's really, really valuable. This is the last chapter of Venture Deals, so 16. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in the podcast. We had eight downloads, Aaron. We were supposed to start at 11 today. It's now 4.30, 4.45. There were eight downloads from 11 to 4.45. That's impressive. I think it is. I feel like you're not taking me seriously here, but... I, I mean, yeah, it's good. Now, I was on the phone with three clients, and I said, hey, you should all listen to this, and I sent them the link to the podcast. How many people were on those calls? I mean, I'm sorry. One call, three people. So there's oh, okay. three of them. Okay. okay. still five. Well, anyway, we appreciate everyone tuning in. Let's jump into this. So there are seven sections covered here in chapter 16. Honestly, we could do an entire podcast on any one of these sections. And I'll tell you, if you're listening and you want us to really dive into one of these things, shoot us a note, podcast at VelaWoodLaw.com, and we will do a whole podcast, you know, just a longer one, 10 to 20 minutes on any of these sections. I think they're really, really critical. And it's this is good for the kind of entrepreneur library or the Vela Wood for entrepreneurs library. First section, Aaron, intellectual property. So we talk about startups. I talk about, I say intellectual property. What do you think? Intellectual property, at least at the outset of a startup, is everything. It's the idea. It is the marketing plan. It is, you know, what are we going to name our company? What are we going to name our widget? It's everything. I think a lot of people hear IP and think patents. Right. For most companies, they don't have patents. They don't have patentable ideas. So it really boils down to copyright and trademark. The example they give in here is really relevant. You're sitting around, you're having beers with your buddy. You say, hey, Aaron, I'm going to start a 7-Eleven food truck. Remember? Mm -hmm. We talked about that a couple episodes ago. I'm going to do a 7-Eleven food truck. And then you say, that's a great idea, Kevin. Here's one idea. And your idea would probably be dumb, but it was one idea related to the 7-Eleven food truck. And so six months later, you go back to whatever you're doing. I start the 7-Eleven food truck. It's going really well. And six months later, you show up and go, bro, we're partners in a 7-Eleven food truck business. So what are you talking about, Aaron? This is my business. And you say, no, I was there on day one. We started about it. I gave you that one idea, which you've obviously incorporated. We are equal partners. Now, if those founders or one of those founders comes running to us as lawyers and says, here's the situation, the situation I just described to you, who owns what? What are you saying there? I don't think it's that big of a risk. But that being said, if you want to make it go away, 
throw the guy a little equity, throw him a little cash, you know, something. That's the problem is it's definitely messy. Like, right. You're right. I don't know. I, you know, Kevin, the guy who was running with the idea, probably owns most of it, probably owns all of it. But why are we even why are we even having this conversation? Right. I mean, don't leave yourself susceptible to this kind of legacy day one idea guy, you know, and someone else making a claim for your company. Now, the most tangible way that we see this all the time is domain names. Right. Right. You and I, Aaron, come up with the idea. I go and start the business. You incorporate the domain name, 7-Eleven-Foodtruck.com. We work on it together. Six months later, you say, peace, I'm out of here. I say, great, I'm going to keep running the business. You say, cool, Kevin, you can have the business. I keep running the business. I incorporated at that point in time. Then two years down the road, Aaron shows up and says, oh, by the way, I want a million dollars for 7-Eleven-Foodtruck.com. And I'm going to say, what are you talking about? And what is your response going to be, Aaron? I own the domain name. The company doesn't own it. It's it's my and property. Then you and I are going to go to GoDaddy.com and it's going to say registered by Aaron Turnway. Yep. And Aaron owns the domain name. So very, very critical that you get all your IP issues sorted out. We have this conversation all the time when we're speaking at startup events. I know, Aaron, you went and lectured at a, at a college class last week. This is the same advice we give everyone when we talk about early stage founder issues. I mean, heck, we have a presentation around it. Get your IP sorted out. Get it down on paper who owns what. And then when you form the company, assign it all into the company. Okay? So intellectual property, these are ridiculous examples, but... Don't let one of these examples be you. The next topic was employment issues. This comes up all the time in a very similar vein, right? Aaron and I start 7-Eleven Food Truck. We're both working for free because it's not we're not making any money. And secondly, it's probably not that great of an idea. And then it's uh, a great idea. <laughs> and then and then you know Aaron and I get crossways and we have a few drinks and Aaron punches me in the face for some reason. And so I say I'm leave. I quit the company. And then I and Aaron says, okay, fine, quit. And I quit, but then I go talk to an employment lawyer. And employment lawyer says, well, you should have been paid. You work for the company. So I come back and I say, here, Aaron, I'm suing you. Uh, you had to at least pay me minimum wage. What's the response there, Aaron? In Texas, it depends on what percentage of the business you own. It's a great start. It's a great start. If you own more than 20%, 20%. right? Own more than 20%, you're exempt. Yes. But let's just say that we had multiple co-founders and I owned 18% of the business. Then, yes, the company should have been paying you I've got a valid wage. claim, right? Yeah. And so now I've got a wage claim. It's probably not that expensive from an actual dollars owed standpoint because you just really have to pay minimum wage. But heck, now Aaron's got to, he's got to get distracted. First of all, he's probably so distraught that our friendship has ended after he punched me in the face. So that's difficult. I thought we weren't going to tell true stories. <laughs> then secondly, now the company has to get distracted with a wage claim. Wage claims are the most common lawsuits that we see, whether they're state wage claims, IRS issues, not being brought by an individual defendant or an individual plaintiff, but by the IRS, and actual former employees, right? Claiming for unemployment, making claims for some sort of discrimination, harassment we see from time to time. But most often, you have a crummy early stage employee, you fire them, they come back and say, you never paid me minimum wage. And we say, well, we gave you 4% equity. And that guy says, this is worthless. I should have been paid, yada, yada. Now you're in a lawsuit, huge pain in the ass to deal with. Aaron properly said earlier, talk to your attorney about it. But the answer is give him a little bit of equity, a little bit of cash and have him sign something. Do we want to touch on briefly unpaid interns? Yes. Yeah, that's a good one. Sure. Since you brought it up. I mean, I don't know the law around this really well, but my thinking is unless you're providing college course credit, 
you need to be paying them. That is wage. the law in Texas. Okay, yeah. so that's the law in Texas, and every state's gonna be a little bit different. But unless you're giving an unpaid college credit, and their college has to accept that as a credit, you do get these interns who just come and say, "Oh, I'll do it for college credit," but they're not actually getting college credit. Then you're violating the law. Whether it's enforced or not, I have no idea. But let's just stay ahead of the game on things like this. Just pay yeah. the kids 10 bucks an hour. Yeah. Easy enough. The other thing that would take forever to really dive into, but uh, independent contractor versus employees. Yes. Right? Early stage companies call everyone an independent contractor. Just because you call them an independent contractor doesn't make them an independent contractor. Now, let's be honest. The reality of it is that if you had to go pay everyone as an employee and pay taxes on them and pay benefits on everyone, no startup would ever survive. It's just you can't do it. So there are ways that this gets done. As Aaron mentioned, if you own more than 20% in Texas, you don't have to get paid minimum wage. You can have independent contractors up to a certain point in time. After that, it's probably good to get employees and just build this into your pro formas. So you're paying for employee plus wages plus payroll taxes rather than calling them independent contractors. And then once you flip them to employees, oh, heck, now I have to pay 10% more in salary. So make sure you budget out for that. But please, please visit with your attorney on, uh, on independent contractor versus employee. And then back to the beginning of this part, the employee wage claim, it's going to happen. Don't be surprised by it. Just get your attorney to work with you on it. There will come a point in your tenure as founder of a company, you're going to have to terminate somebody. You're going to have to let somebody go. Make sure that you are documenting everything that they've done wrong. They've shown up late. They, you know, they show up hungover or whatever. Make sure you're documenting that because chances are, if you do terminate them, you don't give them a severance. When you terminate them, they will file a claim with the Texas Workforce Commission. Yeah, that's a great one. Really easy advice to pick up on there. This is why you also should have an employee handbook. Yeah. A very basic one that says you will treat people with respect. You will dress appropriately at the office. You will not show up after drinking or doing drugs. And then it's easy to say, hey, you violated this. Document it so that when you fight, when you terminate them, like Aaron mentioned, you're terminating them with cost. Mm-hmm. Okay, next, state of incorporation. I think this one's pretty simple. Aaron, why are 90% of startups incorporated in as Delaware C-Corps? Because that's how Delaware makes all of its money. No. <laughs> uh, because Delaware has a very comprehensive set of corporate and LLC laws, and the courts in Delaware are very familiar and adept at handling those types of suits. And so that's just how it's progressed. That being said, we're in Texas. Texas law tracks very similarly with Delaware. And so we see, I mean, you probably have the numbers on this, Kevin, but for me, I think we deal with more Texas entities than Delaware, but it's Texas and then a close second. You know, from Delaware. a small business perspective, yes, because we do have a lot of small business. From a startups, it's probably 80% Delaware C, right? Um, 5 to 8% Delaware LLC, 5 to 8% Texas um, mm-hmm. C or LLC, and then the rest other. Maybe a, a Wyoming or Nevada sprinkled in yeah. there. You rarely see anything else. Incorporating outright in California is nuts. If you're based in California, you're going to have to qualify there or register there. So that can be expensive. But like Aaron mentioned, Delaware is the preferred state. It just has a long history of governance of corporate law. Any problem or issue or lawsuit that might be raised concerning your corporation, they've rendered a judgment on it. So we know what they're going to say. Also, Delaware's corporate franchise taxes are pretty manageable and there's no state income tax. So that's why Delaware is generally pretty favorable. As far as a corporate structure, most often... 
we see a Delaware C Corp. C Corps are easiest to grow. And boy, as our clients get bigger and bigger and we have big LLCs, they are tough to grow. Now, LLCs in the current tax climate, right? This could be changed in the next couple of months. Currently, LLCs are significantly more favorable from a tax standpoint. This is why you will see a handful of companies and we have a very large client of ours go through the headaches of growing and taking on late stage venture capital as an LLC because of the significant um, tax advantages upon exit. However, most companies are a Delaware C Corp. This is the default structure for any startup. Stripe has a program called Atlas which they offer to international entrepreneurs all over the world. I was just in uh, Santo Domingo, the Dominican Republic, and several of the startups there were talking about how they incorporated using the Stripe Atlas program. They just push you right into a Delaware C Corp. There's no question. Interesting here, Aaron, on page 207, they recommended an S Corp, which I would not recommend for a startup. Here's where an S Corp makes sense to me. If you are a startup, you want to grow quickly and issue options to your employees, but you, you're not going to take on entity investors just yet. It's really easy to form as an S corp. And then as soon as you need to take that money from XYZ venture capital fund, you can drop your S election. You already have your corporate structure in place. You already have your option plan in place. And then you're just ready to roll into creating a second class of equity. So let me rephrase that. First of all, they did not recommend an S <laughs> they recommended a C but they said an S is a, is viable. Aaron's right in that situation. My problem with an S is when you bust an S, it automatically goes to a C, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're going to use an S because of the tax, uh, of the flow through tax status, then you can be an LLC because you can go for an LLC from an LLC to a C. But if you choose an S, you can't get back to an LLC, right? But I guess I'm I'm coming at it from the the perspective of a company that knows they're going sure. to be a C Corp yeah. eventually. And rather than go through, I mean, because converting an LLC to a C Corp costs money, takes attorney's time, takes it takes a couple of weeks to get the documents together and then to file. And so from the perspective of a company that says, listen, we know we're going to be a C Corp eventually, it's easier to be an S Corp. You know what? And I agree with that point. And here's the thing. A Delaware C is good for most for the vast majority, to be honest. But if you're going to explore other alternatives, you've got to go talk to your attorney right. and an accountant, probably yeah. both. Uh, because an LLC might be better for some, an S-Corp might be best for others. And even though you were thinking a C-Corp is not right for you, it might be right for you. Right. right. So if you have to do something, then Delaware C-Corp. Otherwise, go talk to a professional, yeah. a couple of professionals. Okay, great. I will make the point that I am seeing VCs, family offices, high net worth invest into LLCs from time to time. So I, I wouldn't write those off. Accredited investors, when you're raising capital, it's way easier to raise from accredited investors. This isn't necessarily fair. This is just the way the law works. The SEC makes it much easier for accredited investors to invest into your business, i.e. much harder for them to sue you if they don't like what happens with their investment. And it's not uncommon for a venture capital investment to go way, way south. So if that's going to happen, you want to make sure that the company and then potentially you individually as the founder are protected from any sort of suits. With some very basic legal guidelines, it's very difficult for credit investors to sue for some sort of misrepresentation or fraud or anything like that. I mean, over here, we take great care with our offering documents and our um, state and federal blue sky requirements. When you raise my credit investors, the standards of what you have to prevent to your investors is much lower than when you when you raise from unaccredited investors. 
The reality, however, it is that you're probably going to have some unaccredited investors, especially in your early rounds. This is just what we see. And so if you're going to do that, you have to make sure you're working with an attorney to ensure that your offering documents are accurate. And to make sure that you're getting your state blue sky filings wherever they need to be filed. I will say that from the accredited investor perspective, you can be sued as a company for anything at any time. Just because you're only taking accredited accredited investors doesn't mean they won't try to sue you for fraud. They won't try to sue you for whatever. The risk for taking unaccredited investors includes, at a minimum, the, the rescission. They can make you go basically buy them out for whatever they paid, and hopefully it's several years down the line and the company's worth a whole lot more and you have cash in the bank to do that, but that can that could really hurt a company. Yeah, so just to make that point clear, if you don't do your offering documents properly or file the proper federal or state exemptions, and then you end up raising money from unaccredited investors, and the unaccredited investors get, get crossways with you, they have a right of rescission, which is where they can rescind or undo their investment docs or their investments, their subscription agreement, and then make you pay them back their cash, which nine times out of 10 an early stage company is not going to have at its disposal. So scary stuff in there. And a lot of people freak out about it. I can assure you this stuff is not a big deal when dealt with appropriately. So please consult with your attorneys before any capital raise. All right. Two more, Aaron. Next one is filing an 83B election. You want to talk about what an 83B election is? Yeah. So let's say you're one of the first hires of an early stage startup. You will likely receive at least a portion of your compensation and equity. That will typically be done through a restricted stock purchase agreement. Restricted stock purchase agreement is basically, it's like an option, but it has reverse vesting, meaning you get all of your equity up front the company has a right to repurchase that equity or a portion of that equity, depending on if and when you leave the company as a service provider. So say you have 100,000 shares, it's on a four-year vesting. So you get all 100,000 shares up front, you leave after two years, the company has the right to repurchase at the amount that you paid 50,000 of those shares. The IRS will not tax you on equity that is subject to a substantial risk of forfeiture. And when I say that the IRS won't tax you on it, you say, well, okay, well, how, how are they taxing me on this equity? They're taxing you on the equity because if you're not paying fair market value for this equity, then it's treated as ordinary income. And so you filed an 83B election. The 83B election lets the IRS know, hey, as the taxpayer, I'm aware that this equity is subject to a, a risk of forfeiture. However, I want to go ahead and pay the taxes on it now while it's at its lowest value so that from that point on, after you pay those taxes, any increase, any appreciation in the value of that equity is taxed tax at long-term capital gains rather than waiting until the substantial risk of forfeiture is gone, the, the equity is worth a whole lot more. And now that much more valuable equity, that whole amount is treated as ordinary income. So there is a, I don't know if it's a myth or old wives tale or whatever about some founders failing to file their 83B election, vesting their stock over time, selling their company right around when their last shares of stock would have vested. And as a result, they got taxed on the difference between FMV or fair market value and their exercise price, which is probably zero, or their granting price, which is probably zero. They got taxed on that spread 
instead of just instead of all getting capital gains tax, right? So the difference to them was ordinary income treatment on let's just say a ten dollar per share exit and a one cent purchase price versus capital gains treatment on the entire increase from one cent to ten dollars. Uh, that difference could be millions of dollars. And to the taxpayer, uh, you know, you as the early employee of a startup. The downside to filing an 83B election is pretty minimal. It is whatever the ordinary income tax on this equity that, you know, is probably worth fractions of a penny per share. And so when you take fractions of a penny per share, multiply it by how many shares you get, and then multiply that by your effective tax rate, it's going to be next to nothing. Maybe worst case scenario we see is maybe a couple thousand dollars of extra taxes, but generally it's in the hundreds or the tens of dollars. And that's on the, that you're talking about taxable income. That's correct. That's not even the the amount of tax that you're paying on it. That's correct. So if you're at $4,000 in taxes and you're a founder and paying, making $0 your first year, that's going to be a max of a thousand. Heck, you wouldn't even get taxed. You wouldn't even hit the minimum, the minimum income level. So yes, there is that we know of no risk in filing this thing. You got to file it within 30 days of the, of the receipt of the grant or the date of the, of the grant. Make sure you visit with your attorneys on this. Real critical. And also your tax advisors because we are not tax That's advisors. Correct. That's correct. All right. Last section, uh, section 409A valuations. Aaron, do you say 409A or 409A? So typically when I'm referring to the number, I always say zero. But in the context of 409A valuations, I just say 409A. Why is that? I, I agree with you. I think it should be 409A. Because it's easier to but say. But not a number. Yeah, O is not. I mean, I guess that could be an O. It's not an O. It's not. It's a zero. It's a zero. Okay. Because it refers to the tax code section. Okay. Let's talk about 409A valuations. So this is something that we deal with all the time now, right? And back in the day and and reading through what Brad and Jason read here just confirmed everything that I've always been told, right? Because we weren't around before 409A existed. But I had always understood that people just used to price common at 10%. And it's funny because if you talk to an old school attorney who's been doing this for 30 years, anytime you have preferred, they just said, well, common's 10%. And the way we've kind of grow up, grown up, Aaron, our environment has been now 20 to 30%, yeah. or you go do this valuation. Brad said the exact same thing in this book. Common is generally priced at 20 to 30% of preferred. The reason why you have to get that price done or that valuation done comes out of 409A of the IRS tax code. So let's talk about a couple of things. One, why does this exist? And then two, why is there such a dis- discount? Why is common only 20 to 30%? So 409A exists because the government's out there trying to screw everybody and they just want to make it really hard for us to do anything. In all reality, I get it. For later stage companies, it wouldn't be right for someone who's maybe at Airbnb's level to just give some options to, to an employee and say, oh yeah, we think these options are worth $1.50 each when an Airbnb's worth billions of dollars, right? Because then the employee's getting significant benefit or they could make it much more expensive. So I get it. For later stage companies, you want to have some sort of law in place that says, hey, just go do a reasonable valuation, figure out the fair market value of your options, the fair market value as of the date of grant will be the exercise price, right? That's the price that the recipient gets to buy them at. Obviously, the recipient's going to hope that the price goes way up and then they exercise them um, for 12 cents, whatever today's value is, and their value is way increased. And so now they get all that benefit. Early stage companies, this is a lot harder to do because early stage companies don't necessarily have all the data or the history to go prepare one of these things. And then these things are expensive. Now, they used to be really expensive. I mean, when I first started jacking with these things, Aaron, seven, eight years ago, it was 
six to eight grand. You could find yeah. some hack to do it for three or four grand. And man, for an early stage company, right? That's really expensive to do. Now, with the advent of Carta, formerly known as eShares, Carta, formerly known as eShares Inc. eShares Inc. Carta and uh, CapTable.io, these things are starting to commoditize, which I think is a really good thing. So you can get these things done in the thousands of dollars now, which makes sense for a seed stage and A stage company. But still, if you're a really, really early company, you might not want to pay $2,000 to issue a couple of these things to you know your first employee. Just visit with your attorney and your accountant on that. Your accountant might have some sort of methodology or formula that the board can use to establish this. I will be clear. If you're, if you're seed stage or later, you really should be getting a formal 409A done at least once a year. Very easy. Go to, go to carta.com. Let them do your... Uh, your 409A valuation and manage your entire cap table. Okay, so Aaron, so that's where it comes from. That's why you have to do it. Why is common priced less than preferred? So a couple of reasons. Preferred has preferential terms, whether it's a right of first offer on new issuances of securities, whether it's anti-dilution protection, whether it's being able to elect a board member or having protective provisions. They have all these preferential terms. That contributes to the value of the common being lower, but also the liquidation preference. Typically, the most common preferential term that preferred stock has is a liquidation preference. That means in the most common scenario that we see a 1x non-participating liquidation preference, it's downside protection. They get at least the amount of money that they put into the company. Or if it's going to be more beneficial to them, they participate pro rata with the common. So because you have this preferred stock that's basically ahead of in line of the common stock, common gets discounted. Okay. Let's work through an example here. Just make sure everyone understands. So Aaron, assume a early stage company, they an investor invests $2 million, his non-participating preferred, and he invested at a $10 million valuation. Okay. Okay. So 10 million, let's say 8 million pre-money. Okay. okay? 10 million post-money investor owns 20% of the business, yes. right? For those at home, 8 million pre-money plus $2 million investor is 10 million post-money, 2 million over 10 million is 20%. So if the company exits for $100 million, mm-hmm. does the investor want his, his 1x back or does he want his 20%? He wants 20%. He wants 20%. He wants, two, he wants $20 million. Yes. If the company exits for $2 million, yep. does he want 20% or does he want his $2 million back? He, he wants his $2 million back. He gets his $2 million back. He gets his 1x back. If the company exits for $6 million, does he want his $2 million 1x back or does he want his 20%? He wants his $2 million. Still, all the way up to $10 million, He'll just take his $2 million, That's his 1x non-participating preferred. Once you cross the $10 million threshold, that investor now gets would rather take 20%. But that's why preferred is worth more because at $2 million of preferred, as long as you can get $2 million in a fire sale for the assets or the IP, the investor's getting covered and common gets zero. All right, Aaron, any other thoughts on 409A valuations? Nothing. All right. So these are legal things every entrepreneur should know. Thank you so much for listening to our review of Venture Deals, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. In closing, our show notes, you can find them on our blog at VelaWoodLaw.com where we will have a link to this episode. You can find a link in the iTunes episode description. Follow us on Twitter at VelaWoodLaw, on Instagram at VelaWood, and rate, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. This is the Office Hours Podcast. Aaron? Five stars only. Five stars only. Thank you. We're going to have another review of some sort coming up soon. Just give us a few weeks. Thanks.
The Vailawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at